Welcome to the Castalia podcast. My name is Isla Ratcliffe, I'm a Scottish fiddle player, and I have just released my debut album, The Castalia. In this podcast, I interview musicians from Cape Breton, an island on the east coast of Canada with a rich traditional music culture, thanks to the many Scots who emigrated in the 18th and 19th centuries. I was very lucky to spend four months in Cape Breton, a life-changing experience that inspired my album. It is the people behind Cape Breton music who make it so special. This is why I have created this podcast, to give you the chance to meet them. We tend to think of dancers dancing to fiddle music, but I think a lot of fiddlers in Gaelic culture will think of themselves as playing fiddle to the dance, that the fiddlers are in some way secondary to the dance, I guess. Today, I'm speaking to Heather Sparling, who was my professor at Cape Breton University. Her research interests include Cape Breton dance traditions, Gaelic song in Nova Scotia, and the revitalization of the Gaelic language through music. Since my album features step dance, I was keen to invite Heather to tell us about the history of this tradition. I'm the Canada Research Chair in Musical Traditions and a Professor of Ethnomusicology at Cape Breton University. I take great pleasure in a lot of different kinds of music, but when I'm away from Cape Breton for a while, um, and I may be enjoying many different kinds of music wherever I am, and I come back to Cape Breton or I hear Cape Breton music, there is something that just really grabs me very physically and gives me such a lift to to listen to it. So to me, it just feels very uplifting and joyful and exciting. And to me, it also speaks of community and heritage and lots of things that I feel really passionate about. That's lovely. Because I think when I was first getting into traditional music, I think one of the things that really drew me to it was the kind of sense of home that comes along with it, which I guess, yeah, speaks to that idea of comfort and community. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm not originally from Cape Breton, but of course it's been my home for a very long time now. And we came to Cape Breton partly because my research was in Cape Breton music, but it wasn't home in that sense, but it has become home for sure. So definitely, I was always drawn to that music, but it has that extra level to it now as well. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely. And why do you play and research music? That's a long story but I've been interested in both music and I guess like Scottish heritage and culture for most of my life so my mother's maiden name is Farquharson and I was always very aware of our Scottish heritage and our family and I felt like when I was going through high school that I kind of had to choose between doing a music degree or a Celtic studies degree and I decided to do music and I became a classically trained flute player but when I was uh, in the middle of my degree I went and lived in Edinburgh in Scotland for a year and worked there as a secretary. And in the evenings, I took night classes. Uh, And that was when I first took Gaelic for the very first time. And I also took Scottish country dancing. And I fell in love with both of those things. I'd always loved dancing. um, But then I was exposed to this sort of traditional form of dance. And when I came back from Scotland, I finished my music degree I also discovered ethnomusicology, which I'd never heard of before in my life. And it just seemed like this was the way to bring together my passion for both sort of Scottish heritage and uh, music. 
And I decided that it would be a lot cheaper and easier if I could do my studies in Canada rather than traveling <laughs> to Scotland all the time. And I had heard of Cape Breton and this place that had this really strong Gaelic and Scottish cultural heritage there. So I decided that that's where I would do my research. And my research was originally, I had intended to focus on dance music, actually. And so I became really involved, I was very involved with Irish set dancing. And I became involved with the Scottish Gaelic community in Toronto. And that I decided that maybe the first thing I could do was to do some research around Push the Beal, since these were tunes that are used to company dancing traditionally, but we're also part of the Gaelic language community and, and song. And when I first started doing those interviews, I got some very different reactions. So the first person I interviewed was originally from the Isle of Harris and had emigrated to Toronto. And she talked about how Porsche Beale were these wonderful things that she remembered as a girl and she danced and they were wonderful. And then the second person I interviewed had strong connections to Cape Breton and she was very dismissive of Porsche Beale. She was like, oh, they're, they're not real songs. They're just tunes and nobody would sing them if they didn't have to. And this discrepancy, along with the fact that a lot of CDs were coming out of Cape Breton at the time with Porsche Beale on them, made me sort of think, well, maybe this is something to explore. And so that moved me a little bit more into Gaelic song as opposed to dance music, but it kept me there. So my master's thesis was on Porsche de Beale. And then when I did my PhD, I moved more broadly into, into Gaelic song, but I've maintained this sort of interest in both of those things. What is your favorite musical memory? I don't know. I feel like this is so hard. I, maybe I can say it this way. When I first came to Cape Breton to do my research, the very first summer as a grad student that I came to do research, um, I went to every square dance that I could go to. That was an amazing summer. It was a lot of fun because then I heard amazing music and got to dance to it. And I think that one of the things that I really love about Cape Breton music and dance is the close relationship between those two things. And how, to me, when people are dancing, that's the way that they're listening to the music. They're listening to it through and with their bodies and not just with their ears. That is the body's ability to um, respond to the music that helps to determine, you know, our assessments of that music, how good that fiddler is. It was a very powerful experience for me, as, particularly as somebody who'd grown up you know, as a classically trained player, where that is not such a common way of interacting with music. And what is your favorite tune? I would find it really difficult to narrow this down to a single tune. But I'm going to propose that my favorite is the combination of Kalam Krupoch and a Mulindu. Because these are both tunes that are very well known as Push de Beale in both Scotland and in Cape Breton, and because the fiddle tunes that are associated with them are also still very well known, they're regularly played together. And they're very unusual in that the Gaelic names are still the names by which they're most known. Whereas a lot of other fiddle tunes that have Porsche de Beale attached to them might have English titles as well as Gaelic titles. I also remember when I was at CBU and doing the Gaelic language course, and one of our assignments was to sing Callum Krupach and submit a recording of it. So it reminds me of Cape Breton, that tune. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's awesome. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because Callum Krupoch in particular 
seems to have a few variations and some of those variations are better known in Scotland and some of them are better known in Cape Breton. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's a, they're obviously the same tune and the same basic lyrics, but there's some variations which make it kind of fun. Yeah, it was really good fun. Great. So if you were speaking to someone who had never heard of Cape Breton music before, they didn't know anything about the traditions there, how would you describe Cape Breton music? So I'm opening a bit of a can of worms here, but how would you describe what it is? Yeah, thanks for acknowledging that because that is the tricky thing. And yet there's also, in for many people, a sort of assumption about what Cape Breton music is and that they're really kind of thinking about that sort of fiddle and dance tradition. So I think when I was thinking about this, I would describe this to somebody as a form of Celtic music. And I would use that term Celtic knowing that most people in Cape Breton would really hate that term. But because it's such an umbrella term and it allows us to um, talk about many different uh, related traditions that all have had an influence. So in Cape Breton, I would describe it as deeply rooted in Scottish traditions, but with really powerful and strong influences from other Celtic traditions like Irish, but also Quebecois and Acadian we might see some Newfoundland influence in there. So I feel like there's a, a fair number of different, not surprisingly, a number of different influences that have come in, but always with this sort of Scottish core. And I would describe it as a tradition that is strongly focused on the fiddle and the bagpipes and with a very distinctive piano accompaniment style. And that is still very closely allied with dancing traditions. And focusing specifically on the dance element, because as you've said, one of your main research interests is vernacular dance traditions um, in Cape Breton. And I've got some step dance on my album. Annabelle Bouguet, who was a student at Cape Breton University, I met her there. She's doing some step dance on a couple of the tracks. So could you tell us a bit about what step dance is and the history of it? Sure. So Cape Breton step dancing is derived from traditional step dancing that came from Scotland. Until not that long ago, people in Scotland weren't so sure that that could be true because it had, of course, largely seemed to have disappeared from Scotland. But the research, some really wonderful research that was done in the 50s, for example, with people who would have been almost 100 years old at that time, makes it pretty clear that this definitely is a tradition that came from Scotland. And I think more people in Scotland accept that now. But it seems to have derived from two basic forms of dancing that aren't practiced in Cape Breton anymore. So one is the Scotch Four, and the other is named solo dances. So the Scotch Fours are what we would call it. This was a, a kind of dance that was danced by two couples facing each other, two strass bays and reels. They would alternate traveling steps, which would be a sort of basic traveling step and a setting step. And the setting step would be an improvised set of solo steps. So all four dancers are dancing whatever steps they want. So they would do this for a little bit and then they would travel again and they would change partners and change spots. And then they would stand, they, they would stay in one spot and they do a little bit more stepping. So that stepping and that improvised aspect is what we see in today's step dancing. But the Scotch Four was not a solo dance, it was a social dance. So the other form of dancing that it comes from are these named solo dances. So these would be dances that were done to specific tunes, like, for example, the Flowers of Edinburgh. 
And they would have had a, a sort of specific set of steps that would have been danced to that particular tune. And our solo step dancing tradition in Cape Breton today doesn't have that sort of predetermined set of steps, but it does have that solo aspect to it. So those are the two sort of originating forms of dance that inform Cape Breton step dancing. But of course, Cape Breton step dancing has evolved into its own thing. And of course, over time, it has interacted with different kinds of other solo step dance traditions elsewhere in Canada and beyond. And so we see, for example, I think um, Ottawa Valley step dancing in particular has maybe had some influence. And of course, there would be influence from Irish step dancing. And uh, to me, it, there's a lot of similarities with uh, Shannos step dancing. It's definitely not the same, but that sort of close to the floor, um, sort of tidy stepping. Um, there seems to be a lot of similarities there as well. And the other thing that's really interesting about Cape Breton step dancing, of course, is that it's been integrated into square dancing in a couple of ways. So this is distinct um, in Cape Breton. So it, there's one particular square dance, we, we call it the West Mabu set, where there's a figure uh, where people stand in lines facing each other, the women facing the men. And there's a, a moment where everybody can step dance. Uh, and so the better step dancers can show off fancier steps and those who don't have as many steps can do a sort of basic step or whatever. So that's pretty distinctive. And then the other thing that we do is we have the step dancing lineup, uh, which is just in the middle of, of, the, of the square dance. Um, after a few, maybe a couple of dances have been danced, the fiddler will start strass bays. And of course, all of the square dancing is done to jigs and reels. So as soon as we hear that strass bay, we know it's time for the step dancing. And then the step dancers in the room will usually have to be convinced, maybe not always, but often have to be convinced to kind of go up and show off some steps. It's part of the Cape Breton way is to be like, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly. Oh, please, you must. That's interesting because you'd get the same kind of, oh, no, no, you must go up and dance at Scottish Cayleys as well. So <laughs> interesting to see the parallels. <laughs> so when step dancers go up in that step dancers lineup, are they improvising the steps or will they have decided beforehand what steps they'll do? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the intention is, is that they're supposed to improvise on the spot to the tune. And obviously, the more they know the tunes, the better they'll be able to choose the steps to go with the tunes. But it's also true that, uh, you know, I, I sort of think maybe it's the same with fiddlers, really. Um, so when we do sets of tunes, there is a sense that it could be anything, but just through practice, certain things start to come together. So yes, improvised, but also this aspect of predetermined kind of comes in there, even though it's unofficial. Mm. Yeah, interesting. You were talking about how step dancing is kind of the reaction to the music, like it's a bodily reaction and you can kind of tell how good the fiddle player is based on whether you can dance to their music. What what do dancers look for in a fiddle player and in a pianist? Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention about this, I find it really fascinating that most of the step dancers who are really recognized as really good step dancers in Cape Breton are also musicians. So it's pretty hard to think of many names of step dancers who aren't also fiddlers. They could be pipers, they're often fiddlers or pianists. And sometimes they're all three. 
So I think that's important because it really speaks again to that relationship between the dance and the music that we don't sort of separate these things the way we might, you know, it always, I always find it difficult in our school curricula, how, I don't know how it is in Scotland, but here in Canada, we typically have dance and phys ed because it's a physical activity and then music is separate. We've treated dance and music as they're this separate, these separate things, but they're not in many cultures and particularly in Gaelic. So I think that, you know, that, that sensitivity, when a, a step dancer already knows how to play music and the musician already knows how to play, how to step dance, they're very sensitive to what is going to make for a good way of playing. So I think that that helps a lot. But I think it's also just that there's a, there's some kind of invisible feedback loop that's going on between the musicians and the dancers. The musicians are watching the dancers and they're watching for the physical response. So they're seeing like how how easy is it, what kind of sense of ease do they see amongst the dancers? And they're looking for the dancers to be you know, energized, but they're also feeling it. Um, they're feeling the thumping of the floor and they stomp their feet pretty good. And they have some interesting rhythms that they will stomp. And to me, that's very much linked to the dance as well. And the way that they do those, that stomping is connected to the way that people are moving their feet on the floor. So I feel like to tell you the truth, I mean, this is the other thing that I think is really interesting is we tend to think of dancers dancing to fiddle music, but I think a lot of fiddlers in, in Gaelic culture will think of themselves as playing fiddle to the dance, that the dance is the starting place, even though the fiddle is what starts and then the dancers start to dance, that the fiddlers are in some way secondary to the dance, I guess. Are step dance and Kaylee dancing related in any way or are they two completely different traditions? My sense is that they're really different. Um, so I haven't done a ton of research on Kaylee dancing, but from what I understand is that Kaylee dancing is a, it has different origins. And certainly the, I mean, Kaylee dancing would have its roots in sort of older dance traditions for sure. But the sort of contemporary practice of Kaylee dancing has um, some roots in a revival that seems to have happened sort of in the seventies, for example, and it doesn't seem to have been uh, necessarily a, like a Highland tradition. Like I think um, Kaylee dancing is much more maybe uh, across all of Scotland and not specifically sort of Highlands and Islands or a Gaelic rooted tradition. So as far as I can tell, they're fairly distinctive. And do you step dance yourself? A little bit. Um, you know, what happened a few years ago is I took a sabbatical. And when we take sabbaticals, we have to propose the projects that we're going to do while we're on sabbatical. It's not just a, a year long holiday. And so, you know, I had a bunch of research projects that I wanted to do, you know, some writing projects and some ethnographic research that I wanted to do. But I also knew that I couldn't just be all day long reading and writing. And I thought, what else could I do that would be beneficial to me uh, in my professional development that would be a little different? And I thought, well, why don't I try some step dancing and fiddling. So that was also when I started playing fiddle for the first time. And to tell you the truth, I wasn't very confident that I could do the fiddling at all. <laughs> so I kind of thought, well, if the fiddling fails, I'll keep doing the step dancing. And actually the thing that's happened is the reverse. I've actually stayed with the fiddling and and um, I haven't continued with the step dancing for a few years, but I did take it. And part of the reason I was also inspired was by another fiddler I knew um, from Montreal. He is a very accomplished fiddler, 
And he started doing step dancing lessons. Uh, And I remember him talking about this and saying that, you know, for him, some of the magic of playing fiddle wasn't there anymore because he wasn't sort of striving to improve himself further. Like he kind of had reached the, the top of his game. But the step dancing allowed him to rec- re- like kind of go back to some of that joy of learning while still being related to the fiddle tradition that he was practicing uh, and that he was really getting great joy and new insights about his fiddling through that step dancing. And I just thought that that seemed like such a great thing to think about. If I'm researching Cape Breton musical traditions and if I'm going to fiddle, but also if I'm going to talk about Porsche de Beale and Gaelic song, then it seemed to me like step dancing was like a new way to think about some of those things. It was coming at it in a different direction. And it was also a really good exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, because I actually have recently had a very similar experience. I took a, an introduction to step dance class um, online, a six-week course with my friend Jocelyn, who's also Canadian um, in British Columbia. I did it for fun. It was also very good exercise. I was quite surprised by that. <laughs> but my thighs afterwards, oh my goodness, it's a workout. <laughs> but, Definitely. Um, yeah, it did highlight for me a kind of new way of thinking about my fiddle playing and about the music. Yeah, just really interesting in terms of thinking about the phrasing. Because with me, like mm-hmm. every time that I repeat a tune, I'll change the phrasing, I'll change the bowing pattern. And you can see how the steps that you do can then also alter the phrasing and the way of thinking of a tune. So yeah, it was really interesting, creative exercise. Oh, I love hearing the, like, I love hearing the specific way that it it made you think about your fiddling differently. That's so interesting. That's great. I should probably ask as well, just in case anyone listening doesn't know, what is a square dance? Oh, good question. Yes. So the square dances are the North American version of quadrilles. So quadrilles would have been uh, originated, you can tell by the word quadrille, it sounds like a very French word, um, would have originated in, in places like France and come to Ireland and Scotland. And these are dances that would be done in groups of four couples standing in a square. There are multiple what we call figures um, in each figure is a set of tunes and we have a little break between each figure so so for the uninitiated it might seem like there's a whole bunch of different dances but they're all the same dance and usually there's some kind of common uh, dance moves that help to link those different figures so often sort of the way that those figures start or end for example we have something called the grand chain where everybody sort of shakes hands as they go around the circle in opposite directions the men and the women And then within each figure, there's sort of its own set of steps and set of interactions between the dancers. And the square dance doesn't really have very fancy footwork. It's more about how the dancers move on the floor. So it's more about moving from one position to another or how the dancers are dancing with each other. And some of them are quite complex and some of them are less so. So at the beginning of the 20th century and prior to that, there really wasn't a place where people could do square dancing. It would be too big to do in a house. And so people did Scotch fours or these solo named step dances because they didn't take up a lot of floor space. And around the 1930s, um, churches started to build church halls, parish halls. And these were larger spaces where all of a sudden square dancing could be done. And in fact, the other thing that churches did is they would have these fundraising picnics in the summer 
and they would have square dance stages and scotch four stages. So you would actually have both. That that was the time that both dances coexisted in Cape Breton. But of course, because these were outside and and um, these stages were put outside, there was enough room for for square dancing. But of course, then they were always subject to the weather. And so these parish halls started to get built. And then these fundraising events weren't weren't limited to the summer and they weren't limited to, you know, whether the weather was good or not. And so we get square dances starting to happen in these halls. And that's the beginning of the end of the Scotch Four. So the Scotch Four sort of disappears and the square dance takes over. Typically, you dance the same square dance over and over again in an evening rather than having different kinds of dances. And that might seem really boring to some people. But first of all, it's possible because there's no caller you kind of need to have the same dance repeated over and over again because they are still kind of complicated. So if there were too many dances, people wouldn't be able to do them without a collar. And then the other thing that I was going to say about that was it's about the, the importance of changing partners. So the, the, the dance repeats, but then, I mean, part of the interest is the different tunes. Of course, there'll be different tunes played every time. So the music is different. But also that I typically see that Cape Bretoners tend to really mix up who they dance with. Because why not? Because you've already danced with this person. It's the same dance. So let's make it'll be different when it's a different partner, um, which really makes it nice in terms of making everybody who's in this in that dance feel like they can participate, you know, whether or not they've come with a partner or whatever. Mm. And what is what do you see the role of square dances and step dance in the tradition as being? Is it bringing people together? Is it preserving heritage? I think it's more than preserving heritage um, because, first of all, as I mentioned, like this isn't even a tradition that came directly to Cape Breton from Scotland. Um, and is, you know, actually a more recent tradition compared to, um, say, like the solo step dancing. But even that, as I've explained, is also its own evolution of the sort of traditions that came from Scotland. So I feel like it's a fairly modern, I mean, relatively modern <laughs> variation on traditional culture, I guess. So I, I, I mean, I think it's partly about heritage, but I think that, you know, people do it, it's not just a reconstruction. So to me, it's not just about heritage. To me, when people are just doing something for heritage, they're doing it as a demonstration for others, because it doesn't really exist in the living tradition. But square dancing and step dancing are very much a part of the living culture of Cape Breton. Many Cape Bretoners do these things all the time. So I do think it's an enactment of community for sure. You may remember me talking about this when you were at CBU. I'm always talking about this. <laughs> There's an ethnomusicologist, his name is Tom Torino, and he talks about the differences between participatory and presentational music making. And that most cultures tend to privilege one or the other. You may get both in any culture, but that usually one form is more privileged than another. And in mainstream sort of Western culture, we're very much presentational. So that's that idea of somebody on a stage presenting music to a listening audience. And there's all sorts of things that go with that. That means that you're probably the music that you're going to listen to is probably going to be much more sophisticated. The musicians are going to be very well trained. It's probably a very polished piece of music. The music is probably a bit unpredictable to keep it interesting. All of these things. Whereas participatory music making is where the sound object is less important than the participation of the community. And participation can be done in many ways. It can be contributing to the music itself. It can be dancing. 
And I see that as being what we're seeing in Cape Breton is that it's a very participatory culture. And the idea of the square dance in particular really enacts that idea that we really want to do these things together. And that echoes a broader cultural sense to me of shared, lots of shared things. So we see, for example, you know, in Scotland, we talk about a walking uh, walking of the tweed, um, and that still exists in Cape Breton, also as part of the living culture. We call it a milling frolic. But the walking or the, fro- the, the milling frolic were about communally processing woven cloth. So this woven cloth had to be shrunken, pre-shrunken, so that when you washed it later, it didn't shrink and your your trousers weren't suddenly six sizes too small. And and also to kind of make the fibers more uh, fluffy so that it would they would be more weather resistant, more wind resistant, more water resistant, all of these things. So we have to process this wool, but it's very tedious and boring work and time consuming. So the gales get people to do it together, as in many cultures, and then they add music to that piece as well. So we get these songs that accompany it. And the word frolic is a very common word in North America, I think. Other people might in the States might think of it as a bee, like a working bee, uh, but they're the same concept. It's the idea of bringing people and community together to do some kind of labor action that would be difficult to accomplish on one's own. So you get things like a barn raising frolic and a barn raising frolic would include, so that would be the constructing of the, the barn. And so a bunch of people would come together and do it and they might do it in a day or two. And then part of that was the host would provide food and there'd always be dancing afterwards as well. So there'd be music and dance. And then we also get things like the spinning frolic um, is another one. So where people spin the wool together. So there'd be a bunch of women with spinning wheels and they'd be doing the wool. So there are many, many activities that could be done communally. And so that sense of participating together, of working together on something to me is then echoed in the ways that culture is practiced, that these traditional practices like square dancing. So I definitely think it's part of that communal ethos and value that is at the heart of Gaelic, what it means to be Gaelic. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely to hear, because certainly the sense of community around all these traditions in Cape Breton was probably the most striking thing, actually, about Cape Breton traditional music culture. Like you say, it is a living a living tradition. And I remember also one of my favorite memories from Cape Breton, my time in Cape Breton, there's there's loads of them, but one of them was being at the festival club at Celtic Colors Festival. But I remember there were just, people got up to the front and started a square dance just spontaneously. And it was just one of those lovely in the moment experiences where, you know, you're you're just, you're all responding to the music together. And they, that you have that way of responding to the music in the form of a square dance. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. When we talk about Cape Breton having it very strong roots in Scottish culture, Cape Breton fiddling and dancing, having strong roots in Scottish culture, it was very specifically Gaelic-speaking emigrants who came and settled in Nova Scotia in the late 18th and up to sort of the middle of the 19th century who came and brought their culture with them, including the language were very unusual. I mean, Gales uh, spread right across, they they emigrated across the world and certainly right across Canada. So there were Gaelic-speaking enclaves right across the country. But Cape Breton, of course, has continued to have intergenerational transmissions so that to this very day, we still have first language Gaelic speakers 
here who can trace their family lineages back to the people who came from Scotland. And so a lot of people will very specifically kind of talk about the traditional culture in Cape Breton as being rooted in Gaelic culture. And of course, there have been controversies over the years, questions as to whether how much the Gaelic language is important to fiddling and dancing, for example. And some people believe that it's really important and some people don't. But I think that regardless of the language, I think we can say that the the music and dance traditions are very much rooted in a, in a sort of Gaelic heritage and a Gaelic culture. So that's why I used that word when I was talking about Cape Breton culture. Because you speak Gaelic yourself. I do. I t- tend to describe myself as functionally bilingual. So I definitely can speak it and I'm definitely not a true, fl- truly fluent um, Gaelic speaker, but I, yes, I can speak it. Just to clarify for any listeners who don't know about Gaelic, is it Gaelic? Is it Gaelic? Is it either? <laughs> yeah. Actually, there was a wonderful post recently just talking about this very question in Cape Breton and what should we be saying about it? So for people listening in Scotland, that may sound very strange because in Scotland we'll say it's Gaelic and usually Gaelic is what we think of as Irish Gaelic. But in Cape Breton, we speak Scottish Gaelic, but we call it Gaelic. I mean, I think that that part of the the post that I was just referring to was kind of saying, well, didn't we just start calling it Gaelic because that's the sort of English way of saying it? So maybe we should go back to Gaelic because that's how you pronounce it in the language itself. But, you know, I don't know how easy it would be to change it at this point anyway. So, yes, we say Gaelic here, even though it's Scottish Gaelic. (laughs) Interesting. And one of your research interests is language revitalization through music. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. As an ethnomusicologist, my research is always involving people. It's based on anthropological methods. uh, So I do field work and I do interviews with people And so really, my ability to function as an academic is really dependent on the people, people's generosity with me, with their time, their willingness to share their insights about what they do. And so it seems ethically appropriate to want to do something to give back. And I'm here as a guest in Cape Breton. And I feel like it's important for me to try to think about how my research can be meaningful to the people here, to the Gaelic community here. And so one of the things that I've often thought about is, well, what's most important? What are people most concerned about right now in Cape Breton around Gaelic? And Gaelic language revitalization is a big one. There's a real concern about its loss. There's as, you know, of course, it's endangered globally. The Gaelic language is endangered in Scotland. It's also in deep endangerment in in Nova Scotia. And so lots of people are trying to work on language revitalization efforts because we actually know that there's about 7,000 languages being spoken in the world today, and a good half of them are in danger of disappearing within less than 100 years. So a lot of languages, a lot of them are indigenous languages, and uh, we don't have good methods for, we don't have good evidence of what will work to bring a language back from the brink of extinction. So it seemed to me like there was there's lots of excellent work being done in the area, but it might also benefit to have something, somebody like me come in from a completely different direction and kind of come in, not from the linguist's perspective, but from the music's perspective. 
And I thought about this partly because I, t- I taught Gaelic for many years myself, and I can't tell you how often I heard somebody say that they came to Gaelic to start speaking Gaelic to Gaelic classes because of a Gaelic song that they'd heard. This is this happens over and over and over again. I am sure that it is the majority reason that people come to Gaelic language classes. And really, when you think about it, that's kind of incredible because a language is not a small commitment. A la- learning a language is going to take years. <laughs> and a song motivated somebody to come and start learning the language. That That's huge. So I started to think about how could music help with that. And I started to think about how maybe it didn't need to be just music there's a lot of research that shows that music is helpful to learning another language, but it's always a side element. It's always brought in after the fact. So you learn the language and then you bring in a song because it's a bit of fun and you get to try using your language and it's culturally relevant. And that's great. I think that's really important. But I thought, what would happen if we put that model on its head? What if we started to imagine coming to the language from music and through music rather than adding music onto the language? So that's uh, that's what I'm hoping that I'll be able to contribute back to the community. And, and hopefully there'll be relevance to other languages that are struggling as well. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I came to learning Gaelic. I started learning Gaelic when I was in Cape Breton. And I came to it from a background of music and just wanting to know more about the culture. Great. Well, I think there's just a couple more things I'd like to touch on. First of all, we've spoken about how Obviously, there was Scottish emigration to Cape Breton and many aspects of the culture have evolved since the first emigrants. To what extent do you think there is a a distinctive Cape Breton traditional music culture, whether that's the fiddle style, the piano style, Mm -hmm. the Gaelic language or the dance tradition? Traditions always change. Let's just put that out there first. I think that, you know, when academics and collectors first started collecting traditional cultures sort of in the 19th century and especially when recording technologies became available in sort of the early and middle 20th century the assumption was that what was being captured was the tradition and that any deviation from that indicated loss but we just never had a record of what was happening before but i think what we can really clearly see with now recordings of over 100 years that we've been able to do in communities is that traditions always change. They're always in flux. And in fact, that has to be because otherwise, how can they be doing anything of use to the community that's practicing them? They need to respond to the community's needs of that, of the present, not just be the way that they always were. And of course, part of that has to be the connections to the past are also important. So I do think that that, you know, there's always going to be a sense of continuity, but then there's also going to be changes happening. So it's not surprising that since the time of immigration, which now we're talking about, you know, 200, 300 years, that the musical and dance traditions in Scotland and Cape Breton have gone in very different not in very different directions, but they've evolved in their own ways. Each In each place, the traditions have changed as those communities needed them and they needed them in different ways. So I definitely think that the tradition in, in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton has become its own distinctive thing while still obviously being very clearly linked uh, with some practices that are the same or very clearly connected to what was what was and is being done in Scotland. 
what I would also say is that today it's of course so different than it was in the past where we have so much ability to connect with each other. The, the speed, it's not that connections couldn't exist in the past, but they were slower and more time intensive and more difficult. And whereas now it's so easy to travel and to listen to the internet and have recordings and go to festivals. And, and so what we see is that now there's this wonderful opportunity for all sorts of musicians from different places to come together and to share their traditions but that also means that they're influencing each other's traditions, which is also inevitable. That's also part of the, the dynamic of traditions. And it's also very human for us to want to, you know, when we listen to something different to be and that we like, is to say, oh, gee, I wonder if I could do that, right? And try to bring that into our own tradition. So as we have greater and greater opportunities to interact with each other and hear each other, that's also having an inevitable impact on the tradition. And so in some ways, I think some people would say that we're lessening the difference between traditions now, as we all encounter each other more and more frequently. So I'm not going to say whether I think that's the case. But what I would say is that the piano tradition seems to me to be particularly interesting and distinctive in Cape Breton. And that, of course, has only I mean, this is always interesting, too, is we love to talk about how rooted the Cape Breton tradition is in Scotland. But of course, the piano tradition came very recently. That did not come with immigrants from Scotland, for sure. And pianos really only became sort of affordable in the sort of late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so we see the piano coming into the Cape Breton tradition at that point. And because it was coming in kind of not with the Scottish tradition, it was kind of free to be developed in whatever way people here wanted it to. I mean, I think really it was coming in with early recordings, so early records of fiddlers, whether they were Irish fiddlers like Michael Coleman or Cape Breton fiddlers who were recorded very, very early in the earliest days of the recording industry. For some reason, the recording industry just insisted on having pianists with all these fiddlers. And sometimes these pianists were not from the traditions of the fiddlers, and they were just trying to figure out how do you accompany this music that's not music that they were familiar with. And my husband, Chris McDonald, is um, in the midst of writing a book about Cape Breton piano. Um, so hopefully in the not too distant future, listeners who are interested in this might be able to to find out some more by reading his book. But I've, I have to admit that a lot of what I'm telling you comes from my conversations with him and hearing about his research. It became pretty clear that uh, that this sort of piano on the record tradition um, then started to be adopted and evolved by people from within the tradition as pianos became affordable and available to people in Cape Breton. And, and then it's filled with influences from non-traditional elements, right? So there's definitely a sort of ragtime feel to some of the piano and the sort of walking bass lines of jazz. And uh, so there's definitely pop culture has shaped that tradition in, in pretty un interesting ways, but has made this very distinctive sound that a lot of people recognize as Cape Breton. Mm. I mean, that's just so interesting because I know that you've also written about how Cape Breton is also often portrayed as kind of being a memory from the past. It's like mm. Scotland's old traditions are still preserved on this island called Cape Breton. And yet in parallel with that, you've got this relatively new tradition of Cape Breton piano style. It's always interesting to me how people 
think that rural places and islands and places like this are somehow segregated from the rest of the world because there's such a clear geographical boundary, which I get. And yet, until the advent of the car, I mean, really, the main way that people would have traveled is by boat. And so actually, waterways were the primary means of moving. And obviously, if you're an island, you've got lots of water. So there's actually in some ways more interactions that way. I mean, the other thing is, of course, it isn't always about um, physical proximity either, right? So we know that Cape Breton was able to access uh, radio stations from the United States, um, place radio stations from places like Virginia, and hearing Southern country music, that this would have been influential as well. So I mean, Cape Breton, and of course, then people, you know, some of it's coming in. So we've talked a little bit about that Boston connection, people going to Boston, coming back, but also the the two world wars were really influential. So people left to serve in the wars and then came back and they had experiences from there and brought insights and new music and all sorts of things from those experiences. And then there's the radio. And so, I mean, Cape Breton has never been a really truly isolated place. And then we talk about things like how the piano tradition evolved or the square dance tradition evolved. And those are not coming from Scotland. Those are coming from later introductions from other places. So Cape Breton's always been a place that has been really strongly connected to other places and popular culture. But at the same time, I think what makes people always interested is that there's some kind of continuity, there's some kind of practice that continues and is not constantly being replaced by the most recent popular culture. So it's being influenced by that popular culture. But there's something continuous there too. And that's what I think people really are drawn to and are really what they're thinking about when they're talking about traditions anywhere, really. Like if I think about myself coming from Toronto, what's the Toronto tradition? Like I just couldn't tell you that there's one. There there just isn't. Um, because Toronto is a, a metropolis and a cosmopolitan city. And so there's constantly different people living there and people moving. And the popular culture is the modern culture. It's constantly being renewed and replaced. Whereas in a place like Cape Breton, we really see that even as it evolves and even as new influences are coming in, there's something that's still carrying through that there's something you can trace back Mm. fascinating well heather it's been a pleasure chatting to you today and just so nice to see you again two years on from when i was in cape breton so thank you so much for coming on the podcast you're very welcome thanks for thanks for having me Thank you very much to Heather for taking the time to chat to me about Cape Breton traditions and of course a big thanks to you for being with us. Heather's most recent project is available at her website disastersongs.ca and you can find out about her other work on LinkedIn. If you would like to buy my album The Castalia it is available on Bandcamp or at my website islaratcliffe.com. See you next time.